to five minutes with Sean maybe ten this is an exciting topic today we are actually live at H&H Automotive in Omaha Nebraska we are in a dealership so you may hear dealership type noises intercoms phone calls people walking away this is why I wanted to do this here because it's a live environment so I am joined today by the COO Jeff of Omaha of H&H uh, and his CMO recently promoted Tom and so um, the, the, the big thing about today for everyone listening is we want to bring you guys, based on the feedback we've gotten, what's going on with dealerships, kind of what they feel like, who they're looking at and considering, and, and what their issues are. So um, this particular company, H&H, has been in business, I believe this April is 88 years. Yep. Jeff, is that right? Yep. So 88 years in business. Jeff, when did you, really quickly, the, the quick one on you, when did you start working in the family business and when did you take over the family business? Well, just to clarify, you said this is going to be 10 minutes, so mm -hmm. knowing you is probably going to be a lot longer. Than it minutes. is. We're yeah. going to go over that. And, and, and then the audience knows for these special editions, we're going to do this. And uh, it's, if he's got to go 10 minutes with his explanation, then so be it. But we're going to, we're going to cover all of it. So, so yeah. I, uh, uh, I started in the business when I was, was, when I was 14 years old. Uh, detail parts runner working on the service drive uh worked summers w went to college in omaha here so i could so i could work um and started full-time full-time in the business right in the prime time of 08 okay. and uh got to go through the uh gm bankruptcy and all that got to go through uh, downturn in general yeah in general. cut my teeth in the middle of all that and it's kind of uh how the path went okay so you got into 14 years old by choice or just the family business was, hey, Jeff, it's time for you to get involved. <laughs> um, so uh, well, been, it would have been when I was 14, it just would have been a summer job, right? Yeah. So you need to have a job. And I think I always just kind of knew I wanted to be in the business. I never really thought about even doing anything else. It was just kind of what I always wanted to do. My, my dad was in the business. My grandpa obviously was and his brother my great-grandfathers who started the business. We had a few other family members involved, but for the most part was was that uh, that line, and I just kind of really never thought that I would do anything different. That's awesome, man. That is a, it, that is a storied, storied history. Now, you've come into this in 08, where obviously things were not the greatest. They were, they were rough for the industry in general. For you, taking over kind of that COO role in, in times that may have been a little bit tougher, what, what's, what was what stood out to you the most as, hey, I'm no longer just Jeff the GM or Jeff the sales manager. I'm kind of looking over this whole thing. Like, when did that moment happen for you? Well, so uh, my my dad, my father, I call him Steve. So he we had a lot of ideas about how. I remember I told you we would have a couple of pauses along the way. That was pause number one. We are in a dealership. We are busy in a dealership. So Jeff, we were talking about kind of how it all came together for you um, and, and Steve, which by the way, first time I met Jeff, he mentioned the name Steve 10 times until I finally asked him who Steve was. He said, it's my dad. So very professional this family is from the very beginning. So we were talking about when you took over kind of that, that, that watershed moment for Jeff where he realized he was now the leader of a family business. Yeah, so what, what I was saying was that we, um so Steve and I kind of had some grand ideas about what I was going to do to, to 
to learn the business. And a lot of it actually included me going outside of our business, outside of our industry, maybe doing an MBA, uh, going to work for other dealership groups. We even had some things set up, but when 08 happened, uh, it was kind of obvious I needed to stay here and help. And I kind of uh, got put in some different positions and wore, wore multiple hats, which is common, right? Uh, but caused me to learn really fast. Um, and um, so through eight and 09, I learned a lot. And then it just kind of become to the point where there was, you know, I was developing our BDC and some other things. So it was too hard for me to walk away because uh, of those reasons. So uh, fast forward to, to the last few years, I kind of just continued to do different roles as sales manager and GSM and uh, we bought two new stores in 2016, which was uh, uh, a big uh, change to the whole way we, you know, we ran the business. And so I kind of uh, got put into a position where it was obvious that uh, it, it wasn't really the title came after the fact. Right. Sure. So the reason why we came up with the CEO title is because I was involved with so much and and I wasn't the CEO, I wasn't Steve, and it just we had to have a way to be able to communicate who I was and what I was doing. And we're fortunate enough to have a lot of really good folks on our team on the sales side and the fixed ops side. And so our fixed ops team can do a lot of things on their own. And I'm more involved on the sales side than I am on the fixed side. But uh, basically, it just kind of got uh, you know put in a position where we had to figure out how to run with the ball. Do you say, do you think the timing of when you came into this business really helped mold the way you look at it today? I mean, the fact that 08, 09, when you really got invested in some of the hardest times that I've ever seen in my 20s. I don't think that it, I don't think the timing necessarily changed my perspective. I think that had I gone and learned things from further away, I, I got trial by fire, right? right? So a lot of folks that start their own business, bootstrap, they kind of trial by fire and they learn. And, and so I kind of trial by fire had to learn our business a lot faster than what my timetable would have normally been. Because that's a big yeah. part of it, right? I, heard that, I hear that a lot with people in your position who are, are part of the legacy of a dealership is this idea of going to other stores, this idea of being in other markets. Do you, do you regret the fact that you couldn't do that? Or do you think like, hey man, the fact that I'm in Omaha was probably the best bet you know, long term? I think I would have learned some things. I think. We're fortunate enough to be in an, uh, a 20 group. Uh, we're in a couple of them, but we're in one for our, for our Chevrolet store that's really good. Um, it has some really strong dealers. So I've been able to go travel to their stores and learn a lot uh, in a very short period of time. And also there's other dealers. It's amazing how open other dealers are to talk to other dealers as long as you don't compete. Yeah, as long as you're not in my market, so, you can come on out and sit yeah, down and have a, coffee all day. There's a lot of dealers that I have in my my phone that I call and you know we talk and so uh, I don't you know looking backwards I wouldn't have done any different. I think it caused caused us to be able to to learn a lot faster. So. And that's, again, to me, that's one of the biggest things that, that we have to look at because when, you know, you look at 08, 09, and the one thing that I kind of want to just touch on with you here as we kind of transition to our next topic on this is with the way things have changed in digital marketing, right? And the way that the consumer engages your inventory, we're moving into this online retailing world. How much do you believe it's, it's, it's right now? Like, do you believe that 
50% of people are truly gonna buy a car without stepping foot in your dealership. You know, do you, do you, when you added your new technology, do you have, what's, what are you hoping to get from it? Like, what do you really think is the engagement? Well, so we um, have used some different OEM programs as far as e-commerce goes, right? Mm -hmm. So e-commerce is the easiest way to define an A to Z transaction that's not in store, right? right. So uh, OEMs have looked at all the data and decided that's something they need to be a part of between third parties or themselves have had their own program. So we've explored and been involved in those and have had practically no success, right? So, um, but is know, that software based? The success, the, the lack of success, is it, is it software? Is it no, setup? I mean, software is always just a tool. So I think it's an important part of it, but also people and process and how we handle it's an important part of it. But the, but the software never really, um, was set up to be the best experience for the customer. So it became hard for us to want to invest in the people and resources necessary to make it be successful. Yeah, because so you sense. just said it, right though? It's about the, it's about the people and the process. Yeah. So that's what it's about. Yeah, so, but when you don't have the right tool, it's hard to want to invest, right? Right. So what happened is, uh, you know, we've been watching and we saw obviously like Carvana and what they're doing. Um, and there's a lot of interesting factors. They're public now, so you can see how much money they're not making. and. <laughs> and their margins and what they're doing and, and it's you know it's all about top line revenue for them and 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 share price and market cap but um they're validating that there's a decent part of the population that's willing to transact online so what what i did is i realized that okay there's something there should we go ahead and start exploring is this a real thing that we want to go ahead and invest in and not just have it be a trial thing so normally in our business, we do a lot, we'll try this, try that, and then you're just gonna fail, right? So are you gonna be all in or not, right? right. So um, we did a lot of research um, and, and we, we aren't full speed on what we wanna do yet, but we are starting to, uh, we've signed up, uh, we're engaged with Roadster, which is one of the big platforms there uh, that has, we think the best consumer experience right now. There's some really big dealers out there that are having some success, and so um, we're at a point where we've decided that we're gonna that we're gonna create that as a channel, and we're gonna invest the time and energy. And as we speak, you know that's that's happening right now. Like we just launched Roadster this week, right? So this is this is new. But, we're, but did you launch it on all your sites, or how no. do you, how have you approached that? No, we didn't. So what we're gonna do um, is uh, well, let, let me say this. So majority of the population still for now and in the foreseeable future will not want to do a to z transaction e-commerce right Agreed. but what caused me to realize that this is something that we need to spend time and energy and money on and more importantly time right time is the biggest issue with anything yeah. so just is it worth our time so if you look and you study adoption curves for a lot of trends that have happened in the world whether it's technology or consumer behavior everyone always assumes that once you're at you know you look at a bell curve of adoption that you know okay once 50 percent of whatever the given population is you're looking at so in our context it's car buyers once once it approaches or exceeds 50 percent then it's a majority and it's a big deal and you got to pay attention to it because now majority want to do that so everyone's like oh there's only you know so many there's only 10 percent of the people that actually want to do that the reality is when you look at adoption curves, uh, somewhere between 15 and 18%, depending on who you, who you ask, 
is once 15 to 18% of a given uh, population uh, accepts something or utilizes some sort of new technology process behavior whatever it is that's the actual tipping point of that it's now accepted and it's full-on the real deal so e-commerce retail so Amazon versus brick-and-mortar right so you know depending on who you ask again 10 12 13 percent of the dollars spent in the United States are, are, are online and the rest of it's brick and mortar, right? So a couple of years ago, everybody's like, ah, oh, it's, it's a small percentage. Like brick and mortar still dominates, right? You could hear it on CNBC a couple of years ago. And now here we are going in 2018 and it's obvious that Amazon's putting people out of business. Well, yeah, we just had our largest number of store closings guess ever, what, right? Guess, <laughs> guess what happened this year? This is the first year that online purchases, dollars spent, had uh, went past the tipping point. And, that, okay? and it happened recently, right? Even with this, Black Friday, they said this. This year thing. is the first year it's reached a tipping point. So everyone said, so your brain says, okay, well, tipping point is fifty percent. It's not. It's like 16, 17, 18 percent. So this year, less than twenty percent of the dollars spent are going to dramatically, uh, dramatically change the retail landscape, and it's and it's. And, it's and you see that headed our way in our industry. Like we talked before we started, it absolutely. was big time transactions, still a little bit thing. So do you think we're at, you think we're at 5%, 3%? I mean, I don't, I don't think you both agree we're not at the 14, 16. I think 10%, stopped. I think given, I think given the opportunity to transact online, I think 10% of the car buyers will seriously consider it. Uh, and if it's a good experience, right? So one of the biggest problems, there's been very few technology providers that can do it right. Roadsters, we think one of the better ones, right? Right. So we think it's 10%. Now of that 10%, very few are still gonna actually go through the whole thing online and expect, and then just like in their boxers and then have a car show up the next day. Because the car deal is complicated and we're gonna have to get involved and help and whatever the case is. The technology will, as we have self-approvals and all these other things, the technology will consistently start to get better and it will legitimately get to a point pretty quick where customers can select their lenders and select their structure and they can start to do a lot of those things with our help and do their own car deals. But if here in 2017 going to 18, we're at 10% of the population, how many years is it gonna take till we get to 15, 18, 19% of the population that's really willing to do it? And once that happens, we're at past the tipping point, right? So that's the same thing that's happened in the other industries. So my thought is that we're probably a lot closer to it than we realize, and I'd much rather ride that wave up than no. get ran over by it. Right. So you, the customer experience, though, like you said, and, and again, if, if we could be you know clear about this, I think that it's still about making sure that it's easy for a customer to buy a car from you, right? And, and whether that's online or whether it's not, it's still about being easy. So, so well here, let me, so let me say this. So we're talking about e-commerce, right? And how important that is. So human nature is to wanna be binary. Ones and zeros, black and white. So what everyone wants to assume is that once e-commerce is the thing and whatever, then that traditional showroom, traditional whatever car buying dies. And that's not true. That will never happen. As long as humans are buying cars from humans, right? Right. So, but what will happen is e-commerce will become a bigger channel. The reality is that what will happen uh, is that uh, is the same approach that's 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 clearly unfolding in traditional retail, and that's omni-channel, right? So, online 
in-store combination of, and it's all the same process. I can buy something on target.com. I can walk in and return it to a physical store that can walk into a target store, pull up that product on their website, see what aisle it's in, see what kind of deals they have and walk up to a cash register and buy it. It's omni-channel. Amazon has dominated the online side is missing brick and mortar. They know they're missing. They aren't going to be able to do what they want to do purely online. Hence why they just paid what they paid for, for Whole Foods and other businesses that they are actively participating to buy. Walmart is one of the only brick and mortar businesses that has understood this and has invested in the money and they, what they have, the companies they have and the technology they're going. But to that and, point, the backside of the walmart.com is nothing like going to amazon.com, right? Yeah, so but they, it's getting they better. To, they hit the brick and mortar first and now they're trying to pass so it. They're going technology. brick and mortar into online. Amazon's going online into brick and mortar. The end result being omni-channel though. Right, absolutely. Right, You're and absolutely so right. Amazon is winning the urban customer. Walmart.com already is winning the rural customer. They are already winning. Someone who lives in rural Wisconsin, I can agree yeah. with you. They so, the so, so our business will be exactly the same. Same way. Right? Omnichannel is the, is the winner. The, the, the people that can figure out how to do omnichannel is who's going to win. And what do you do and how, how do you view you know, the, the expense of it right now of, of doing online retailing versus what you're getting from it? Like, are you looking at ROI, Jeff, on this? Is this important to you? Or is it an investment in process and, and people and all of that? that doesn't necessarily have a one-to-one -one ratio of its ROI? Um, well, I think that as a business person, you have to always pay attention to ROI. The ROI on it is gonna be difficult for a while for a lot of reasons, and it really isn't from an expense standpoint as it is from a lack of margin standpoint. Okay. So it's been pretty proven that if you, um, you know, it's 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 more of a margin issue, okay. and it's in, it's not in the places that you think it is. It's in different places. So when you this is all about driving traffic to your site, though, right? In order to get them engaged in this process, it's not happening on other sites. It's not happening at the OEM level. It's happening on your website, right? Mm -hmm. How do you go about driving traffic to that site? Like, do you make it obvious that you have the ability to check out online? Like, how do you how do you want to position yourself to get people? Well, I think that um, I think there's a couple of different answers there, and I think some of it were in the middle of unfolding. We've just decided really that we want to go down this road. Uh, one of our initial ways that we're going to do this is in a, in a stand in a in a more of a used car standalone standpoint, um, and try to learn what works and what doesn't work before we start mudding the waters with the franchise side. So the franchise side. You got to make sure that you really understand all the touch points and where the value is for the customer and us. And I don't want to muddy the water. So we're initially going to do this as a standalone used opportunity. So most of that traffic will be driven socially and in other digital digital ways with the specific focus of creating an alternative channel to the traditional model. So the standalone used car model will be the non-dealership option that exists. So then this kind of naturally takes us to the next topic that I wanted to talk about because you just touched on it, right? Is this idea of used cars. Well, in our world here in automotive, there are what we refer to at CarViz as the big three. Your cars.com, your auto trainers, your uh, car gurus of the world. And, and guys, you haven't yet heard Tom speak, but it's coming now because Tom used to work for one of the big three who doesn't matter at all 
he did work for them for quite some time, so he has good insight. But Jeff, how if you're going to be launching a used car brand, which is what it sounds like you're doing, how do these people play into your future? These big three, like where do you engage them, and do you stay at the same level? Do you stay at the same expense that it has been for all these years, or do you start to scale back, knowing you're trying to drive your own traffic from your own site? Well, uh, Tom and I debate that all the time. <laughs> I think that. And who's on what side of the debate? Can we actually can we can we hear what the debate is? Um, well, I think it depends on the store and the conversation. Okay. And sometimes I'm pro third party. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes he's pro third party. Sometimes he's not. All right. Uh, I think one of the things that we learned a lot from him was the uh, the the opportunity to be spending wisely is in there's a lot of waste in those in those opportunities but I'll uh, I'll just say one other thing and then I'll let Tom talk but I think that it uh, a lot of people it's the same thing with third parties where everybody says either you have them or you don't have them it's black and white and I think the answer is that some of them are good some of them aren't depending on where you are and what you're trying to do and what you're spending so there really is no... And when we talk options. about spending, right right now, I know a lot of the providers, and Tom, were, Tom and I were talking about this before we started, a lot of these providers are now starting to come out with those rate increases, right? It's time to pay more to the piper. Well, it's because they're public now, so now they got to <laughs> show top-line revenue growth. So. Uh, agreed. Agreed. But, Tom, how, when you were in those positions, how do you deal with that, man? From from your position to dealer, how do those discussions go? And, and, and when, you're, when you sit there and, and validate, is it... Is it validated based on new product? Is it validated based on market change? Like, how did you go about that part when you were in that job? Well, as a rep, you know, you there's a balance you have to play where you where you know, similar to uh, a salesperson on the on the dealership floor, you kind of have to play both sides to a certain extent. You know, you have you have to push for your dealer when it's right for your dealer to keep their rates at a an acceptable level, um, and then you have to push for your organization when you know dealers may be undervalued and. Some of these third parties, whether it's Gurus right now or Cars a few years ago, um, never really Auto Trader, um, they're extremely undervalued. When you look at at the business that they're driving and the cost per lead, and, and you break it down, and they undervalued themselves as a way to get into the dealerships, and then they they look at it from there and say, well, well, why is company Y getting what what we we should deserve as well? We're driving better, more qualified traffic. So. You have to, you know, really just look at that value equation nonstop. I mean, it, it changes um, constantly. You know, right now, Gurus is a very strong player. What they've done with their their SEM and SEO and, and where they get their traffic from, they've been very credible in the marketplace. Auto Traders lost some ground. Um, most dealers are pushing back on Auto Trader right now and kind of make helping those rates come back into that value equation where they make sense. Personally, I think there's always going to be a place for third parties. It's just a matter of, you know, to what extent does it make sense? Uh, a lot of the upsells are things they're doing to line their pockets that don't have return. Um, the core product is is pretty much always good uh, with most of them. And, you know, like Jeff said, it, it, some of it's brand specific. You have to know where your audience is and, you know, what your acquisition strategy is. And, and if you, you understand, you know, where that is, then they can make more sense. and. You know, really, I think the third party line that, that is credible is that, you know, consumers are everywhere and you don't want to lose the opportunity to hit that consumer if, if they, they hit, you know, seven different touch points throughout their shopping journey, 20 different touch points, whatever the case may be. Um, you always want to make sure you have some representation on each platform. That's, and I, I guess, I, for those of you who are listening, I hope, I hope you heard that. 
it's about the core product. It's about what they do well. It's about being a digital billboard. It's it's maybe it's not so much about banner ads or skyscrapers or things of this nature that have gone down, but it's the core product that they work within. So, and Tom, you know this better than most. Even if even if a store is on a cars.com, if that store isn't pricing, isn't merchandising their vehicles, and they want to come to you as a vendor and say, "Hey, vendor, uh, you you want to perform for me?" What, what tips do you have for dealers who don't think they're getting enough out of it, but yet they're kind of lazy with merchandise and they're not as exactly aggressive with pricing? I mean, do you, did you see that a lot when you were in the job? Oh, absolutely. You know, now it's gotten better. I mean, you know, where it's come, I think, I think dealers have, have kind of gotten the message in the last five years. Um, you know, your competition is a quarter inch away. You know, if you're not merchandising and you're in our market, it's an opportunity for us because we have, you know, a much better chance of landing that customer. And I mean, everyone knows now that you know your digital storefront is your actual showroom and you need to make sure that whatever message whether it be merchandising a price message whatever your brand message is you have to make sure you're doing everything you can to articulate that to an online consumer um, because you know when you're looking online you could be have the worst facilities in America and be a, a, a credible competitor to someone who's doing everything the right way. You could have the worst customer service and you could be a credible competitor to someone who's doing everything the right way. So you need to make sure you're doing everything you can to articulate your brand message to that audience. Guys, this has been free advice day. I hope everyone is writing these things down. Jeff is telling us about the curve. Tom is telling us about the money. This isn't the important stuff. This is why we did this. And, and because these guys are in a store and they're busy, we are going to get to our last topic and wrap this up. Now, I have to put out a disclaimer about this last topic. As much as this is going to sound like my idea, because it is what I do for a living, this is literally not my idea. And I'm, I'm not going to show you the email because it's personal, but it basically says, I want to talk about wasting money on digital marketing. So Jeff, it was your idea, seriously, to do this, and uh, and nothing that nothing that anyone's mentioned today is because we had to. The companies that we've mentioned are companies that we mentioned because they make sense. It's the same reason we're having this discussion. We're talking about it because it's important right now. It's happening everywhere. So Jeff, where is the biggest waste online that you see in marketing dollars? Well, I don't think that it's specifically an exact area. I think one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it specifically was because since working one of the reasons we chose you and wanted to work with you and one of the reasons that Tom's been super valuable valuable for us is we've learned where to watch and where to look um, and you know it, I just had a conversation with a, a, a an ad agency literally before we had this 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 podcast conversation and in there I was explaining to him, we're talking about 18 budgeting and we were talking about 17, how much mo less money we spent than 16, but yet how much better results we had across the board in different ways. So, uh, you know, it just, it becomes eye-opening about how easy it really is to waste money, right? So the old saying has always been that half of your advertising dollars are wasted. You just don't know what which half, right? Sure. It's been forever. Yes. So digital was supposed to be the saving grace. So because it's trackable, Jeff. It's trackable. It's, it's trackable. We can just see everything. Right? We know the answers. They're ridiculous. So the <laughs> but here's the reality now, right? So when you buy a TV spot for ninety nine point nine percent of the time, you're pretty sure that TV spot's going to air, and probably some human being somewhere is going to see it. <laughs> Right, that, but so that's here's, the confidence you go in with to, well, to, to, to the TV. Ad, that's all you at the really, most basic level. That's right? what you have. Yeah, but yeah. 
So digital is supposed to be a better option, but the reality is a lot of digital, like in particular with display, sure. there's stats out there that are, and, I, and we've validated it before and we've heard it from folks like at Facebook directly. I mean, it could be as high as 60 and 70% of display advertising that you get charged for. It never is even seen by a human. Right. It's, it's, all, ro it's, 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 it's all robots. robots and other things. Yeah. All kinds of ways, right? Yeah. And, and you're being charged 10, 12, 15 times up on what that actual costs, right? Correct. For every display ad, it costs the guy who does it, he gets a display ad for three per penny. Yeah. You're paying a cost per thousand Correct. at eight, nine, ten dollars. Correct, yeah. So, um, but you know, everyone really knows displays aren't super good, but there's certain times that maybe like retargeting works, but. Well, that's why Tom was talking about that on the ride over here from the airport was, hey, Sean, uh, you know, display, not that big of a deal. But to your point earlier, when we were talking about online retailing and the open road that you guys are trying to go in the used car brand, display might be the play, though, right? So you can hit as many eyeballs as possible so they know it's available. In the right, in the right. Um, in the right display networks. I'm not saying on every yeah. stupid app that gets loaded on someone's phone. You yeah. know, I'm talking the CNNs, the yeah. ESPNs of the world. So the other thing that's really interesting um, – you know, and, and we've learned from Tom too is is you just really have to be careful about the reporting that you're getting from the vendors, right? So um, a lot of times you look at numbers and stats and look how good you're doing and look at this and look at that. And of course, those people are gonna show you what they want you to see. Uh, and um, it's just, it's really interesting when you start looking behind the curtain, what is really happening and what the numbers really mean. Um, so, but also you have vendors out there that are ma purely manipulating data too. Um, uh, and it can be done in GA as well, tag manager, things yeah. of this nature. It's not just a straight yeah. across transparency. Yeah. So I think one of the things, just a, just a story to, to kind of end my part on this is that, you know, I, there's, so there's vendors that maybe aren't as quite truthful about what they're doing. There's people that, that will show you numbers that make them look good, just like any of us would as a business person, and don't want you to realize what's wrong, and just kind of shiny, hey, look over here, right? But another perfect example would be we had a vendor that we chose to launch some paid search with with the new store that we had bought, and we had some real specific strategies we were gonna do, and they had this really big budget and this glorious idea of what they were gonna do, and we were, trying to you know pump the traffic and it was a, a new store that was broken and and so we went we went for it um and they kind of kept giving i kept asking for the reporting show me show me show me show me and they kept well this is broken and this doesn't work right and and i guess you can use see this report which was not good and then finally i got a hold of someone in the support system somewhere that i wasn't supposed to be talking to i just asked enough questions and i got to a guy who gave me full on their ga access to the to the to the to the, the actual AdWords account, sorry for yeah. that account. Because you didn't own the AdWords account. Correct. Right. The vendor owned the AdWords account. Well, and they wouldn't let us see it. Your they data. kept giving me a reason why they wouldn't let us see it, and okay. I finally got a guy who didn't know any better. Right. To give it to me and let you see it. Yeah, and so here we are, you know, paying twelve thousand dollars a month and paid search, which sounds like a lot of money, but depending on your brand and the market, but for this particular store, it was a lot of money at the time. And I saw in there for month after month after month that they were only spending six, yeah, four, five, six thousand dollars. And so some vendors sometimes will spend a bunch of money at the end yep. to try to just dump, just to dump the money, right? 
which was another issue. But these people weren't even really spending the money. We were paying them a management fee, and they were holding the difference. And, of course, their reason was that they were so efficient with the spend that they didn't need to do it, which is Right, but it's not like it rolled over to some account was waiting for you next month, was it? Before they didn't spend? No. So when you said that they had a a management fee, was it a percentage-based management fee, or was it a flat fee? Do you remember? Um, Well, that particular one was an all-in number, uh, and it never disclosed the management fee, but it was in there, right? And then they tried telling me that it was – fifteen hundred dollars which is crazy high yeah uh, and then but then they still couldn't explain the difference and then eventually when i held their feet to the fire they wrote me a check back for the money and then i fired them uh so but then from going forward now we only use vendors that show us either use our adwords accounts or or is completely transparent with the data and charges a flat fee regardless of the spend and and so really fast i'm gonna let you guys out of here but you said something right when we got started on this last topic can you validate this really fast that you have spent you said it earlier you said you spent less this year than 16 on marketing is that right spent hundreds of thousands less yeah as a group Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of less dollars and what has changed for you it's gotten worse business sold uh, more cars more traffic yeah okay so more has happened with less because you're now paying attention to it Guys, let that be the takeaway of this entire, entire day. And again, know this, um, it is as important as anything in the world to own your data. Um, After we're done with this podcast, we're going to sit and tear through budgets and get ready for next year. And we're probably going to save even more money than we did this year. All right? So, guys, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening. As always, you can reach me at 262-278-0157 or Sean at Better. I'm also rarely, but I am on LinkedIn. If you ever message me, I'll be happy to get back to you. I do not participate in Facebook, but you will see us. Was this 10 minutes? Uh, No, Jeff. We came in just shy of 35. So thanks for taking the time, guys. (laughs) 